We're going to continue on in our series on thinking biblically, and we want to look at part two of one of the topics that was suggested to the elders for uh, teaching. The topic was who we are in Christ, and I like that very much because particularly in our day and age, in our culture, we don't often think in terms of we, do we? We think in terms of I. Eventually, we will talk about who I am in Christ and you individually are in Christ, but the focus of some of the major teaching in the New Testament is not on the individual and who the individual is in Christ. There is teaching, but the main focus is on the body of Christ collectively, the universal church that was born on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, has filled the whole earth throughout the last 2,000 years, and that universal church will continue, for Christ himself said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That universal church will continue until the rapture of the church. When Christ returns for his bride, snatches her up to meet him in the clouds. That is the universal church. Much of the teaching is about the universal church, but what is true of the universal church is also true of the local church. Grace Gospel Church being one example of a local church. And so our last time when we examined who we are in Christ, we began by looking at the fact that the believer and the local church are part of the building, a holy temple in the Lord that the Lord is building. Today we want to look at the body. That's the second analogy that the New Testament scriptures have. Not only are we part of a building, a holy temple, and not only are we priests in that temple offering spiritual sacrifices to God, but we are also part of his body. Now, this is, there's a lot in the New Testament about this, and we actually need to cover it in two parts before we get on to the third part, the bride. And so today we'll look at a few of the scriptures that our brother Gilson read for us, and we'll look at one main passage. Lord willing, the next time we will look at another passage in Ephesians chapter 4 that has a great deal to say about who we are in Christ in terms of being part of his body. So let's get right into this. We are part of Christ's body, and we want to look at it under two main points. The form of his body, what does that body look like? And then the function of that body. How should we, as part of a local church, function? How should the church function collectively? And how should the individual believer as part of that local church function? So let's look at the form of his body. It begins with Christ. It doesn't begin with any man. It doesn't begin with uh, anyone who stands up here and preaches to you, anyone who leads us in singing or in music 
anyone who serves in a ministry, that is not the starting point for the local church. Jesus Christ is the starting point. We look to no man, we look to Christ. Christ is the head of his body, and the church is his body. In Ephesians 5, Christ also is the head of the church. In Colossians 1, Christ is also the head of the body, the church. The church and the body are synonymous in Paul's teaching, in the teaching of the New Testament scriptures. In Ephesians 1, speaking of God, he says that God put all things in subjection under Christ's feet, and he gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body. In Ephesians 5, Paul makes it very clear, we are members of his body. Christ is the head, and we are the members of that body. He is the head of the body, the church. The head is not any man, not a man who sits on some throne in some city, not a man who plants a church. Paul the apostle was never the head of any church. Christ was always the head. Christ should be the head of every single church. In fact, he is, but practically speaking, we look to Christ and not to any man. How did Christ get to be the head of the body, the church? The Father made Christ head over Christ's body. He, that is God, in the context, if you go back about five verses, you'll see he's talking about God, the Father there, around verse 17 and the, and the verses that follow, and he says that God the Father put all things in subjection under Christ's feet, and gave Christ as head to the church, which is his body. The Father, God the Father made God the Son, Jesus Christ, the head over the church. The reason that Christ is the head is that he, he is also the head of the body of the church, so that, here is the reason why Christ is the head, so that he may come to have first place in everything. It's so that Christ is exalted. Not any man, not any person, not any ministry, not anything that is done. It is Christ who is to be exalted in the local church, in the individual life of the believer who is part of a local church. When we come here to sing praises to the Lord, we don't come just to have an emotional high, just to have our hearts lifted up just to feel good about ourselves, that Christ died and shed his blood to pay the penalty for our sins. It's so that he would have first place in everything. Every thought that we have about who we are in Christ begins with Christ. He is the focus of that. This is quite reasonable that Christ would be the head of his body, the church. First of all, because of who he is. Christ is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the source. He is the originator 
of the church. When he went to the cross and bore in his body the sins of the world, shed his precious blood and died, and then rose from the dead, what would come out of this would be the church. Apart from the death and resurrection of Christ, there is no bride of Christ. There is no church. It's because of who he is that he is the beginning, the source, the originator of the church. That's why he is the head. But secondly, he is also firstborn from the dead. Now, this means a lot more than just the first one to rise from the dead. Never to die again. It means much more than that. This term, as you know, Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians in the common Greek language of the day. The same language that a business contract might be written in. Or a letter from a father to one of his children. That word, firstborn, does not primarily have the sense of first in an order. First, before the second, before the third. What it has to do with is priority, primacy. It is like the firstborn son of a king of England. That firstborn son is not merely the first child to be born, but when he's designated the firstborn, he is also the crown prince. He is the one who will come to the throne. He will inherit the throne. Next to his father, the king, he is the highest authority in the land. But what about in Scripture? In Scripture, the firstborn son in a family in Israel would head the family after the death of the father. In fact, he would inherit twice the amount of land as his brothers. If there were three brothers, he would inherit half and his two younger brothers one quarter each. He would get twice as much as either of them, and he would head the family. This firstborn is a term of primacy or priority. It means he is above all others. He is the head, just as our head is above the rest of our body. He too is the firstborn. It's an appropriate term to use of the head. This is who he is. He has priority over everything. In fact, if you go back just three verses in this very chapter to verse 15, he's called the firstborn over all creation. That puts the matter to bed. It's not talking about order, first, second, third. It's talking about primacy and priority. He is the firstborn. He is the head, the crown prince, the ruler, the king over all creation, so too from the dead. This is why it's reasonable for Christ to be the head of the church. 
because he is, has first place in everything. But it's not only who he is, it's what he has done. That also makes it reasonable for Christ to be the head of the church. Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. We already know that the, his body is the church. He is the savior of the body. In verse 25, Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. What he's done is to save us from eternal condemnation. For everyone who's placed their faith and trust in what Jesus Christ accomplished when he hung on the cross, bearing the sins of the world, shed his precious blood and died, for all who trust in that biblical gospel message that Christ and what he did and what he did alone can save you, if you've trusted in that, he is your savior. You are part of his body and he is your savior and he gave himself up for you, for me. He died so that you and I might live. He underwent the wrath and judgment of God when he hung on that cross and cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So that you and I would never have to cry out those words. It's what he did. That's another reason why he is the head of the church. Because of what he's done. He did what you and I never could do. He paid the penalty in full for our sin. We either accept that good news, that gospel, that good news, that Christ did what we could not, or we spend eternity separated from God and Christ because we did not trust in that gospel message. The ramifications of Christ being the head, Paul writes in Ephesians 1, he raised him from the dead, God raised him from the dead and seated Christ at his right hand far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Christ being the head has this ramification that everything is put in subjection under him. There is nothing in creation, physical material creation or spiritual creation, that is not subject to Jesus Christ. He is head over all things. Nothing is excluded. Brothers and sisters, if he is head over all things, that means he's head over you and I as well, doesn't it? We're not excluded from all. If we're excluded from all, we're also excluded from salvation. But he is our head. He is the one who gives each of us direction. If we are to be subject to him, that means we are to be obedient to him. There's practical application that flows out of this. He gets to decide how we live our life, what we 
can do and what we should not do. And the New Testament scriptures make all that abundantly clear. We are in subjection to the head, being part of his body. The results, and we're going to look at this in more detail when we look at the function of his body, but for now, the results of Christ being the head, we read in Colossians chapter 2, verse 19, holding fast to the head from whom everything that deals with his body, the church, comes from him. He is the head, the source, the beginning. It all flows from him to the entire body. Not the part of the body. There's no local church. There's no part of the universal church. There's no individual believer that is excluded from this headship and what flows out of, from it. From whom the entire body being supplied and held together grows with a growth which is from God. Christ is the source. It all comes from him. It doesn't come from any man. It doesn't come from Paul the Apostle. It doesn't come from the elders of Grace Gospel Church. It doesn't come from any man who plants a church. It's all going to flow from Christ. We do not get to decide how we practice, for the most part, church. How we meet together. What we do when we meet together. That's not a man-made decision. Did you know that? It's found in Scripture. Either by direct statements or by the clear examples of what the early church did. Christ is the head and all that the church does, all that the church is, flows from him. Let's look at the function of his body, and we're going to spend most of our time looking at this. By analogy, the very fact that in all these scriptures that we read before, that Christ is the head of the body of the church, uh, God gave Christ as head to the church, which is his body. We are members of his body. The very fact that this head and body analogy is used. And we're going to see soon how it compares to the human body. Paul actually compares them very directly in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The fact that Paul uses this analogy means something. It's not a fruitless analogy. It's not a worthless analogy. It means something. It's intended to convey something to the reader. To the listener. That's why he uses it. It's a word picture. You've all heard a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, he's painting a picture here. With Christ as the head and the church as his body. And each individual believer as a member of that body. Just like our body has different members, fingers, toes, hands, elbows, a nose. Christ is that head that gives 
direction to the body, just like our head gives direction to the body. We never have to do, I hate when it does that. No, it doesn't have a mind of its own. We direct our body. Christ gives direction to the church through the scriptures. So by analogy, this, this would be meaningless if this were not true, that Christ directs the body. But we've also seen that the church is subject to Christ, and therein lies that direction. The head nourishes and cares for the body, in Paul's terminology. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Christ is the one who provides spiritual nourishment and spiritual care for the church. He does this through his Holy Spirit. He does this through the word of God. He does this through the fellowship of the saints and through prayer. He does this through wise guidance and leadership of those he places in different positions of responsibility in the local church. He is the one who has seen to the nourishment and care of his body and the individual members of his body. Christ is the one who causes his body to grow, holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, not part of the body, not some of the body, not most of the body, but the entire body, nothing in the body of Christ is excluded, holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together grows with a growth which is from God. There's a connection there. Holding fast to, at the beginning of verse 19, grows with a growth which is from God. At the end of verse 19. If there is no growth individually or in the local church, I'd like to suggest this verse tells us what is wrong. The problem's not with the head, Jesus Christ. The problem is that the individual believer, and if enough of the believers fall into this category, then the local church is characterized by it. They are not, if there is not growth, they are not holding fast to the head. It's very clear. Holding fast to the head when we do that, we are supplied and held together, and growth comes. That growth is only from God. It became popular uh, back in uh, probably the 1980s when it first started, and it's very, very popular today to bring in church growth specialists to try and help a church to grow. Now, how do they normally do this? They normally do it using secular business practices. That's what they do. Things that work in secular business, they say that's what your church needs. Your church is going to grow when it holds fast 
to secular business practices. But that's not what Paul wrote in Colossians 2. It's when we hold fast to the head. And that head has made his mind known in the New Testament scriptures. Growth is not your responsibility. Growth is not my responsibility. Growth is not the responsibility of the elders of Grace Gospel Church. Growth is not the responsibility of Grace Gospel Church. That responsibility falls to Christ and his Holy Spirit. The growth comes from God. It does not come from you and I. What are we responsible for? Holding fast to the head. That's our responsibility. Proclaiming the gospel to others. Sharing our faith. Serving Christ. Being devoted and committed to him. That's holding fast to the head. Growth comes from God. Not from man-made practices. It's God's work done God's way by God's people brings God's blessing. Christ as head causes the body to grow, but only if we hold fast to that head. The body is subject to the head and follows the directions of the head. That's involved with holding fast. What does holding fast look like? Being subject to Christ, following his directions. Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body, the church is subject to Christ. A very simple statement. We know exactly what that means. Being subject to involves obedience. Let's look at one of the two main passages of the New Testament that focuses on the functioning of the body of Christ. Both the universal church and the local church. And it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The body of Christ has many members. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, speaking of the human body, for even as the body is one, there's only one of me, not two. My wife's very thankful for that. It's tough enough to put up with one of me. The body is one. My arm's not over there, and I walk over and pick it up and attach it, or a leg. The body is one and yet has many members. And all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. Five fingers here on my right hand, but they're all part of one body. And the same is true of you. Paul is using this body analogy to teach spiritual truth regarding the church. And all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Christ as head has one body. For the body is not one member, but many. The body of Christ is not just one person. The body of Christ is not just our song leader at Grace Gospel Church. The body of Christ is not just whoever is up here teaching God's word. The body of Christ is not one member, but many members. God has decided which body part each believer is going to be. I didn't get to decide 
my body part, you don't get to decide your body part. It's the Holy Spirit and God who decides what body part each believer is. Now, we may think that, oh, well, so-and-so shouldn't be in that role, shouldn't be that body part in a local church. Well, does that mean God made a mistake? If that person is truly to function in a certain role in a local church, does that mean God made a mistake? Just because a person thinks someone else shouldn't be in a particular role? God has made that decision. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. This is what the baptizing ministry of the Holy Spirit does. It does one thing, one primary thing. It places the new believer simultaneous at the point of conversion, at the point of exercising saving faith, at that very instant you are baptized with the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, the church. If you are not baptized in the Holy Spirit, you are not in the body of Christ. In other words, you are not saved. According to Paul, we were all past tense. And he's talking to the Corinthians, perhaps the most sinful of all the churches Paul planted, the ones with the most problems. They were all baptized into one body. And they were all made to drink of one spirit. Now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. It is God's choice what part we play in the body of Christ. Every member is a part of the body and the body of Christ. Continuing with his analogy on the human body, if the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. Now, we understand that with our physical body. Our foot is not our hand, but both are part of the body. This same analogy holds true in the universal church and the local church. Every single one of you who has made the decision to fellowship at Grace Gospel Church, this community of believers, this spiritual family, you are all part of this body this local expression of the body of Christ. You are part of it. It doesn't matter what role you play. You are as much a part of this body as someone who leads a ministry or who leads in song or music or who preaches up here. You are every bit as much a part of this body and as important to this body as anyone else. It doesn't matter what role you're playing. 
whether you're a hand or a foot or an eye or an ear, you're all part of the body. The body requires differences in function. Our human body does. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? You wouldn't be able to hear in your physical body. If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? Look, I wish I could sing like Gilson. You wish I could sing like Gilson if you're ever near me when we're singing. But if I could sing like our brother Gilson, I wouldn't be as blessed probably just listening to him proclaim the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father in song. What a blessing to be there and with the entire music ministry. I mean, they just function so perfectly together, so well together. It just lifts up my soul, prepares me to continue to worship the Lord throughout the day, not just for 90 minutes at Grace Gospel Church. God has placed the members, each one, just as he has desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. The local expression of the body of Christ, of the universal church, this local church expresses that universal church, that universal body. Every one of you is necessary. If we were all the same member, where would the body be? We'd be fighting over who's going to sing solo or who's going to teach God's word or who's going to do this or that. You need the different parts of the body. I need my feet to walk, my hands to grasp things, my eyes to see where I'm going. The same is true in the local church. Every single believer has a function and is necessary and it requires, the local expression of the body of Christ requires different members with different functions just like the human body. Every member of the body, of the physical body, and the body of Christ is needed. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. It's much truer that every member is necessary, not that some are unnecessary. This is the truth that Scripture brings out. Every single individual who has chosen to fellowship here at Grace Gospel Church is necessary. You all have a role to play. Every single one of us does. Do we know what that role is? The health of the church depends upon that. All are necessary, even those that we think are weaker. The newest, youngest believer in Christ. Perhaps it's you. One of you, you you've just been saved. You've just trusted in Jesus Christ 
as your Lord and Savior. You are necessary as well. The new believer, they, they, bring, they bring a zeal for God. They bring a joy and a love for God. The fires of their first love, as they're termed in Scripture, are burning brightly. And an old-timer like me, I, I benefit from that. I love meeting with the young men whenever we could meet together because they excite me. They, they still have that fire in their belly. Their love for the Lord burns bright, and they have the energy, the motivation, and zeal to serve the Lord. And it's infectious. It's contagious. The newest member of Grace Gospel Church is necessary and serves a function. They can be like a spark plug that gets the whole engine moving and that drives the church forward. Never look down on any individual in the local church. According to Paul in Scripture, everyone is necessary. Since all the members are needed, there should be no division in the body, whether it be the physical body or the local expression of the body of Christ. It is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. What's the purpose? So that there may be no division in the body. God hates division in the local church in the local expression of the body of Christ. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, what Christ prayed for most was that we be one as the Father and Son are one. He said it again and again and again and again, that they may be one even as we are. Unity is the opposite of division. There may be no division. In other words, there may be unity in the body. Division within the body of Christ does so much damage to the local church. We may not always agree with everything that is decided upon within a local church. But if we're going to be part of that church, we need to support it. And the way support begins is with prayer. I think your experience would be the same as my own personal experience. The more diligently, the more persistently, the more passionately you pray for one another, for any one person, the more you pour your heart and soul into praying for them before the Lord, it becomes harder and harder to speak evil of that person, to gossip about that person, to slander that person. I'd like to suggest that one of the keys to no division is diligently praying for one another, especially for those who are not your favorite. You have to love them even if you don't like them. You may have nothing in common they may be a totally different person. In fact, 
even though they're not sinful, they just rub you the wrong way. Pray for that person. Pray diligently for that person. Sincerely cry out to God for them the way you cry out for yourself. And I guarantee you, your attitude towards them will change. There'll be more unity in the local church, this local expression of the body of Christ, and it'll reduce division. We all know, all of us who have been here for at least Five years, know what division can do to the body of Christ. How much damage it can do. Comes about through a complete lack of understanding of Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 12. God's desire is that there be no division. All members should recognize the value of every member and care for one another. He writes, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. For what purpose? That the members may have the same care for one another. That's the goal. That's the expression. That's how we know that every part is necessary. And we truly believe in our heart of hearts that every believer is necessary. That we have the same care for one another. We don't care for one person more than another person. Oh, sure, circumstances and opportunity may permit us to minister to that person more frequently than another, but we don't shy away from ministering to anyone because of who they are. And all of us should have that same care. You can substitute a different four-letter word for care the same love for one another. All members should recognize the value of every member and care for one another. If you see someone who seems to be on the periphery of the local church, they come in, they sit quietly, they don't speak to anyone, no one speaks to them, have missile lock on them. Zoom right in on them, talk to them, get them involved. I know a man in this local church who was like that five years ago. And a brother did just that, engaged that man week after week after week. Then he introduced him to another brother who was even better able to care for that person and bring him out of his shell. And that person's still here today, five years later, actively involved in ministry. It works. Identify someone that you can come alongside of, even if it's a quick word of prayer in the prayer room before or after service, or a phone call during the week. Hey, brother, hey, sister, how's your week going? What, what have you learned about the Lord this week? How is your walk? With him. What can I pray for for you? The same pastoral care for one another. The New Testament, maybe we'll get into this, but the New Testament scriptures are pretty clear that every one of us is a pastor in some sense. Caring, discipling, admonishing, encouraging, comforting one another. The body is united, the body is one. How? 
is that care for one another scene. When one member suffers, all suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice in it. You know, you'll hear these stories from time to time, probably in any local church. I've heard them more than once in more than one church. There becomes a uh, need in a ministry, maybe to lead the ministry. That's how it usually comes out, a leader or assistant leader. And somebody wants that position, but they don't get it. It's given to someone else. And what happens? Instead of rejoicing in the good fortune, they're upset over it. Care for one another is seen that when one member suffers, all suffer with it. When one is honored, all the members rejoice in it. All rejoice with it. We should recognize God's blessing on our brothers and sisters in Christ and not wallow in, well, why didn't God bless me? Why didn't they pick me? Why, was, why didn't the decision go my way? That doesn't fit with this teaching, does it? If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. So uh, <clears throat> before I retired, uh, I, I worked for a big defense contractor, and they decided at one point that they wanted to give... Uh, their core 5% of their worker bees. I was a worker bee. I wasn't in management. They wanted to give them uh, a special reward. They did this two years in a row, and it was stock options. And so they called 10 of us in to a conference room. I had a group of 45, but they pulled 10 of us in, um, and they sat us down, and they handed us all an envelope. And then they talked to us, and they said, open the envelope. And I saw what was in the envelope. And after uh, the little meeting was over, this is the unsanctified part of me. This was years ago. I would never do this now, all right? I want you to know this. But I wanted to do a little study in behavior, in human nature. And so everyone, you know, they're all around patting themselves on the back on how good they were to get these stock options. And so I say, wow, wasn't that great of the company to give us 500 stock options? Now, they only gave us 200. I figure that we all got the same because we were called in. And I say 500. You should have seen the reactions from my coworkers. These were good friends on the job, nice guys. You'd want them for your neighbor. They're, they're that nice. But boy, did they become hostile. Why did you get 500? I deserve 500. I mean, it was unbelievable. But it, it's sort of what I expected. They're not believers in Christ. Now, again, I wouldn't do this now because I'm sort of misleading them. But I did fess up at the end and explain to them. But the church should not be like a bunch of uh, fat-headed engineers all thinking they deserve as much or more than their fellow co-worker. When one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Every believer functions as a member in Christ's body as the head intends them to. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church. It's God who's appointed. 
always remember that. Whatever role we play, it's not primarily because, hey, there's something special about me. I get to stand up here alone and talk. No, it's got nothing to do with me. God has appointed. God created us a certain way. The Holy Spirit gifted us a certain way. We, did, we didn't order off of a menu, oh, I'll take one from column A, two from column B. No, we didn't do that. God appointed. We didn't work for it. Why do we boast as if we did, Paul writes to, earlier to the Corinthians. It's God. We take no personal pride in what we do in the body of Christ. We give all the glory to him because he appointed us. The members function as equipped by the head. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. He identifies some, not all, some of the spiritual gifts here. Now, we're not going to, we don't have time to study on spiritual gifts in this series on thinking biblically. And so I'm just going to leave this. I'm not going to go into what is involved with each gift, whether those gifts are still available today or whether some of the gifts have ceased. That's a different discussion. If you're interested in that, just speak with me or give me a phone call. I'll be happy to chat with you about it. But the members function as equipped by the head. God has appointed apostles, prophets, teachers. You see, every role that is played in the universal church and in the local expression of it, God has appointed that. The members function as equipped by the head. All believers do not have the same spiritual gifts. Now, I, I, I need to mention this because there, it is a popular teaching in some churches and on some Christian radio programs and on Christian television that all members can have one particular gift. Everyone ought to have it. Some go so far as to say, if you don't have it, you're not saved. Others go so far as to say, if you don't have it, well, you're not spiritual. Paul, through a series of rhetorical questions. In the original Greek language that he wrote in, he wrote it in a certain way that anyone familiar with the Greek language of the day, the common dialect that was spoken in the marketplace, in the home, in business, that they would have known the answer to every one of these questions is no. That is the only answer. It is so clear. All are not apostles, are they? No. All are not prophets, are they? No. All are not teachers, are they? No. All are not workers of miracles, are they? No. All do not have the gifts of healing, do they? No. All do not speak with tongues, do they? No. All do not interpret, do they? No. It is a no answer to every one of these questions. All believers do not have the same spiritual gifts. And that fits perfectly with the body analogy. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? 
See, it fits perfectly with what he had taught before, what we went over before. All believers do not have the same spiritual gifts. The spiritual gifts, as we saw, and, are, and are, some of them are mentioned here, determine what member we are in the body of Christ. Whether we're a finger or a foot or an ear, the spiritual gifts determine how we function in the body of Christ. Spiritual gifts, however, are not the most important thing. While Paul does say earnestly desire the greater gifts, he says, I show you a still more excellent way. More excellent than even his gift of apostleship, the first one on the list. And what does he show them? The very next chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. All 13 verses of it, it's the love chapter. I show you a still more excellent way. And he lists all the characteristics of true biblical agape love, the love that God and Christ had for us. In conclusion, I want to leave you with two... uh, Challenging questions. Today, will you begin to see yourself as a vital part of Christ's body? Will you do that? Every single one of you is a vital part of Christ's body. You you know where this question comes from. We went through the verses. It's from God's word. Every one of us. There is no appendix, so to speak. No vestigial organ that doesn't serve any purpose. Forget that the appendix really does serve a purpose. We know that now. Many decades ago, we had forgotten that. But there are no useless members in the local church here. Today, will you begin to serve in Christ's body as God intends you to? God gifted you. God has has placed you in the body just like he wants not for no purpose, but so that you can function properly and, and contribute to the health of the local church. Now, that may not be 40 hours a week. You probably don't have 40 hours a week to serve in the church. It might be once a month on a Sunday morning or in some way. It doesn't have to necessarily involve many hours a week. It may not even involve an hour every week. For some it will. For others more. God has ordained your life in such a way and ordered the circumstances of your life such that some of you will have more time and others will have less time. Some need to work more, some need to work less. Some are retired, some are not. Some have more family responsibilities with young children. Some don't. They might be empty nesters. Everybody's situation is different. But before the Lord, every one of us will give an account. And that's what should guide us in our decisions, our prayerful decisions as to how we serve in the body of Christ. So will you begin to do that? Pray about that. Ask God to show you, to reveal to you. Go to others, your friends, and to ministry leads and ask them. You know, is there room for you in that ministry? 
try it. If it doesn't work out, if you don't see God's blessing there, then maybe God wants you to do something else. You know, there's that saying, it's much easier to steer a moving ship. Be a moving ship. Move in some direction. Even if you're not sure, that's what you should be doing. See whether God blesses that or not. He will direct the moving ship. Let's pray. Oh, dear God, we confess to you that we do not always hold fast to our head. We ask that by your Holy Spirit that you would be pleased to tighten our grip, that we cling tightly and never let go to our head, that we as a local church are held together and that there be no division in this body. And we know, dear God, that we have your promise of your blessing that individually and collectively as a church, we will grow. And we trust you for that and we look to you for that. Burden our hearts, dear God, with this great desire to hold fast to our Lord. Help us to understand what part we play in Grace Gospel Church. And dear God, we ask that you would be pleased to bring yourself honor and glory through this local church, that you would build us all up in our most holy faith, that the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ would shine brightly from this church and from each individual life here. We ask all this for your name's sake.